Super excited to do our first fireside chat. I am honored to be here with Allison Pickens, and I'm not even going to try to give her background because I won't do it justice. So, um, wanted to really kick things off by having Allison introduce herself to everybody, and and then we'll dive into the topic of the role of the COO and just everything that's been happening under that. So, Allison, please take it away and tell us a little bit more about yourself. Sure. Thanks, Body, and thanks everyone for having me here today. Um, I know I'm surrounded now by some amazing COOs and, um, you know, happy to impart what I learned from my experience at Gainsight, my experience, you know, working with a lot of other companies, um, but also excited to kind of see what you're seeing in your roles and we can learn from each other. Um, so, you know, as for my background, um, I, you know, my last role was COO at Gainsight. I joined when we had about a million in ARR. So it was very small. I actually, before that, worked in private equity investing and um, at Bain Capital and the venture arm, uh, where, where I got to know the sort of the leader of that, um, had led an early funding round in Gainsight. So that's primarily how I got to know the CEO there. Um, joined in a, a really generalist capacity, kind of like a number two type role. My title changed like three times in the first three months. Um, happy to talk through all of that. But, um, you know, over the next six years, built out dozens of functions. Um, I, you know, ended up leaving when we had about 85 million in ARR. Um, I also spent a lot of time on our thought leadership content. Since you might know Gainsight is a customer success software company, we were pursuing this category creation motion. And that meant, you know, tr having to become sort of the focal point of a lot of discussion about how to drive net dollar retention. Um, because customer success management was one of the teams that I was building over the years, um, the team ended up becoming this kind of like incubator of best practices. And of course, we were working with all of our customers who were in turn customer success team. So we ended up building a lot of best practices about the topic and um, building a lot of community around that. Um, that uh, work on, on, on sort of the content, the best practices ended up um, leading me to advise a lot of B2B SaaS founders who were folks that we were trying to sell to. And um, that led me to join a few boards. I've been on four boards, three private, one public. Currently, I'm on the board of DBT Labs, which is you know, a data transformation company. Um, and uh, I'm also on the board of a public company called Commvault, which is in the data management, data backup and recovery phase. Um, so it's fun to sort of have seen the venture side, have seen the public side. And what's always fascinating is the public companies want to learn to be like smaller companies, be more nimble and innovative and small companies like want to become big companies. So it tends to be actually like a lot more crossover than you might expect. Um, after Gainsight, I, w I wanted to spend all my time with founders and I was trying to figure out a way to kind of like build a business model around that. Um, and realized that if I raised a venture fund and I, I could co-invest alongside lead VCs, I could formalize relationships with founders that I wanted to work with. Um, so I did that and um, have, you know, for the past year and a half, a little bit more than that, have invested in a number of B2B SaaS companies across stages, everything from pre-seed to pre-IPO. Um, and uh, I feel like I have an amazing job with sense that I get to work with like incredible founders, you know, every day, all day. and um, Particularly, and this maybe goes back to our conversation, kind of served. I, I wouldn't quite call it a fractional COO because you know I'm not I'm not a service provider, but I call it like a fractional COO thought partner um, to to many many founders. And uh, yeah, it's, it's excited to be here today and and chat with you all. Awesome. 
Well, I hope this intro allowed everyone to see the reason why we asked Allison to come in. So super excited to have her here and have this conversation. And um, just wanted to preface for everyone, we will make sure there's plenty of time for live Q&A. So I'll kind of get started with some preset questions that will be super applicable to what you all wanted to learn. And then we'll make sure to save at least 30 minutes at the end for you all to do some live Q&A with Allison. So, so don't worry, that will happen. Um, well, my first question already kind of got answers uh, in your background about kind of how you got into the Gainsight role. So would love to kind of dive in and just talk about, you know, in your opinion, based on your experience thus far, what traits and behaviors make a good COO? Well, I, I think the first thing to mention is that there are many different types of COO roles. And depending on where you live in the country, what kind of business that you're, you're supporting, and especially what kind of CEO are you working with, the role can vary tremendously. I tend to see there being four types of COO roles. Um, you know, one tends to be a chief of staff type role, which is kind of the role that I entered into when I first joined Gainsight. So the, there's type one, which is like a, a chief of staff role. And, um, you know, it tends to be like a generalist problem solver, an extension of the CEO. Often this kind of person is hired, maybe in the, I actually recommend a lot of my founders, they hire someone like this in the early days who can really um, help them tackle more special projects, launch more initiatives and kind of figure things out, um, you know, around the company. Um, there's a second type of role, uh, a COO role, which I think of as being like a CFO plus. Um, I, I tend to see this a lot in New York City. For some reason, there's like, it's a very like common role there. Um, maybe, maybe it has to do with like e-commerce businesses or, you know, just the industries that are there. But um, it's it's often someone who like grew up in finance and they're taking on more cross-functional responsibilities over time. They're helping to manage certain functions that might have been called like staff functions and maybe like an earlier era, like, um, you know, uh, finance, legal, HR, biz ops. Um, and they're helping to serve as the glue across functions in their organization. The third type of COO that I've observed tends to be a, a CRO. Uh, they might have the title CRO or they might have the title COO. And, um, and typically they are managing the journey for customers and therefore interactions with all different customer facing functions. So they're, they're managing marketing, sales, um, customer success. If they're a CRO, they may or may not manage marketing. That might be something different. Um, but typically it's kind of everyone involved in the customer journey and there might be, you know, professional services or support that's added to that. And then finally, the fourth type of COO role tends to be, you know, a president, um, someone who is truly running the business um, and they might have all the functions that the chief journey officer or chief revenue officer had, plus maybe people and ops or, you know, corporate development. Often it's everything except product and engineering. So anyway, um, going back to the question that that Fadi was asking, you know, I, I think the the skills that are required for the COO role tend to depend on what type you are. Um, and based on my description, you could probably start to imagine what what the skills are. But I would say, you know, as a general rule, there are certain things that are useful across these. I, I think one is, um, you know, non-technical skills like gaining broad-based buy-in across employees for initiatives that you're launching resolving conflict among diverse stakeholders, um, handling you know, team member concerns, um, and being able to sort of gather buy-in, gather feedback, communicate decisions, help people understand why you know, their, their point of view is valid, but like may not be taken into account. 
um, or like help people understand why you sided with one point of view versus another. I think there's a lot of generally like communication and engagement that's, you know, tends to be a big part of this. Um, I'd say, you know, all four roles tend to um, involve creating OKRs or being really involved in the OKR process one way or another. So I think becoming an expert on that is is probably a good idea. Um, and then, you know, generally, I think learning how to manage a really close, trusting relationship with um, a CEO who is typically the founder, um, you know, and someone who is often very product oriented, vision oriented. Um, focus on community evangelism and um, is less interested in, in, in running operations, which is, of course, why they hired you. Super helpful. You actually even got into uh, something I want to reference, which was you wrote this beautiful Substack article about the rise of the role, and you kind of referenced a little bit about it right now by describing the four types in your opinion. But um, maybe you could deep dive into like why in the last five to 10 years, like this role has been on a rise and like, why are you, we seeing more people? being attracted to bring on a COO? Like, this is super interesting. Sure. Yeah, I, I think um, I think there are sort of two sets of reasons. I think the first set has to do with founders staying in their roles much longer than they used to. You know, 10 years ago or so, 15 years ago, it was really common for um, a founder to start the company, run it for a couple of years, like get to some product market fit, and then like a professional CEO would be brought in. Um, that no longer happens um, for a few reasons. One is that, um, you know, at, at sort of like a basic power level, like founders have much more power than they used to have. There's an abundance of capital, even with like the market downturn and, you know, valuations going down. There, there's still a lot of deals getting done. And there's the, the, the ecosystem, it's flush with all the capital that VCs have been raising, particularly over the last year. Um, and that, it'll take a while for that capital to, I think, like, work its way through the system. And so, you know, if you're raising from a VC as a founder, that you know, that VC is very eager uh, for you to accept them on your cap table. And the last thing they want to do is, you know, appear that to be unfounder friendly, like they're going to replace you, you know, um, at some point. And actually, like, they may not even take a board seat, even at like, you know, series A or like sometimes B or, you know, a lot of the time these, these, Investors are much more hands-off, trying to be much more supportive of the founder. So that's one. You know, also, um, I think software companies in particular are much more product-led than they used to be. Product is important not only for, you know, driving the, you know, the value proposition, but also for the growth strategy, for example, in, you know, product-led growth companies. And so, um, and the founder's skill set is often product-oriented. So um, it, it makes sense for them to continue to run the company. And then, you know, finally, I think a lot of people through trial, through making mistakes have realized that, you know, if you replace the founder, you're, you're removing the person whose like spirit has infused the organization and, um, and like the, the, the organization can suffer from a, a, uh, sort of deficit of like purpose and mission. And it becomes sort of this like executional, um, machine that, People may not be inspired to work at, customers not may not be inspired by from, and, and it, it loses its like essence and raison d'etre. So for all those reasons, like founders are staying in their seats much longer. And that means they, you know, there still needs to be someone at the company that's um, helping to run things, but but that person is is not going to be the CEO. It's going to be 
you know, someone else. And, and so it kind of opens up the possibility for a COO role being much more essential. And then, you know, on so that, that's kind of category reason, category of reasons, number one, which is founders staying in their seats. Um, but there's another category of reasons, which has to do with, um, you know, things not related to the product changing. For example, um, to run an effective go-to-market strategy nowadays, you really need to be able to align all functions. Um, they can't operate in silos anymore, especially if you're at like a PLG company. All these, you know, the or- organizations need to be able to work super closely together. And it requires someone who can help, you know, orchestrate that like very nuanced ecosystem. I think in particular, people are moving away from the vision of a company as being the sort of like militaristic army-like structure, which is, you know, previously what had informed corporate hierarchy, like in the 50s. Um, now people see organizations as being flatter and much more about like, you know, focused on how people collaborate, how they depend on each other, you know, how, how they work together to achieve goals that might be um, goals in common as opposed to goals that like only particular functions own in silo. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I think the final thing is that, like, you know, companies are growing faster than they used to. You know, it used to be like triple, 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 double, double, or triple, triple, double, double, double. And now it's like quintuple, quadruple, triple. <laughs> um, and that's partly because the product is known fault and growth. But you still have people. And it's still hard um, for people to experience change. Arguably, it's even harder when the change is more rapid and you need a leader who can really help orchestrate that change management. Um, so those are the reasons I see why the CEO role has become a lot more popular. Cool. Super helpful. I, I think this has been nice now. We kind of learned the landscape of it and like how it's evolved over time, kind of the different roles and the different stages of like why you need a certain type. I guess now kind of segueing into like you are now in the role. Would love to understand from you, like when you onboard into this, one of these four categories of COOs, uh, and you're at this company now, what are some strategies or approaches you kind of built in your career that says this is kind of the best way to onboard as a new COO? You know, I think listing is the most important part of COO onboarding. I think there, it can be tempting to come in and just immediately try to prove your value. Um, but it's hard to know what counts as value if you don't know your context. So I find that a lot of COOs come in and they do a listening tour and they spend tons of time with the CEO digesting everything that's in the CEO's brain. And that's important partly so you can make, you know, the right decisions as COO. It's also just really important to lay the groundwork for that really trusting relationship that I mentioned earlier. You want to understand, you know, how this person thinks, like what they're hunches are, um, what they enjoy, what they prefer working on, and what they're expecting from you. Um, and then, you know, over time, you can start to, you know, reciprocate and share your points of view and bounce ideas around. And it, it, it lays the groundwork for, I think, a, a good relationship. Um, I also recommend uh, listening to your board. So, you know, meeting with the individual board members, hearing what their views are on the company, why they invested, what their theses were when they did invest, what, what were they expecting would happen and did the company fulfill those expectations? What do they think are the biggest challenges and opportunities going forward? I'd make sure when you're meeting with these board members that you've, of course, like gotten the permission from, you know, the founder. I think it, like board relationships can be sometimes a little bit sensitive from the founder's perspective, um, even in a situation where they're in the power seat. Um, so I, I do 
think it's it's important to kind of like bring the CEO along your journey of meeting with different board members. Um, but I, I do think getting their perspective is is valuable. And it also, again, helps, you know, lay the groundwork for your relationships with board members so that in future board meetings, when you're presenting, you feel more comfortable. They also know a little bit more about you. You know what to speak to because you have in mind what each of these people is looking for from you. Um, and then, of course, you know, arguably the most important listening that you're doing is, um, you know, the listening to team members. Um, so you might set up, you know, depending on how big the company is, like, focus groups of people, perhaps by function or by topic area or um, by location. You know, if, if you have offices in different places, I, you know, I think a lot of companies are remote first nowadays. My guess is that's probably less common, but again, depends on on the company. And, um, and you know, you, I think what you want to clarify in advance of those is that, you know, you are here to learn. You know that, you know, these folks have experience, you know, in this industry and at this company that's very valuable. And um, you want to hear what's going well, what's not going well. How can you make people's lives easier? How can you grease the wheel? How can you make sure that there's better collaboration at the company? And then, you know, once you've listened, you want to play back what you've heard. That's true, I think, for any any stakeholder that you meet with. But I think especially team members really value when they know that you've heard them. Um, and you don't, you don't have to say necessarily, like, here's what I'm going to do about what, what you talked about. But, you know, it is valuable to say, here's what I heard from you. And in the coming months, as I get up to speed, I'm going to be thinking through how to prioritize these things. And, you know, you'll, you'll start to understand the prioritization as we, for example, roll out our OKR process or hone our OKR process. And so I guess once your listening tour is done, you've accomplished like all this data points that you've gathered from the board, the CEO different stakeholders, what do you typically do with it? Like, do you, do you have a set process or a strategy that you usually always go when it comes to execution? And like, how do you go about doing it? Cause I feel like oftentimes what we hear is people are like, I'm constantly fighting fires and I'm, I'm putting out fires constantly. And so there's always so much to work on, but then how do you create the right focus areas or priorities so that, you know, for a fact, these are the five buckets I need to focus on for the next 90 days, six months, 12 months. Yeah. So um, I've alluded to, to OKR process a few times. Um, and and I, I, the fact that I've mentioned it is probably like a good indication that I, my answer to that question would be, yeah, but I think like the OKR process is probably the vehicle for prioritizing. Um, OKRs tend to be, you know, it's objectives and key results. So um, objective is kind of, I, I think of the objective as sort of being the spirit that's behind the metric. Like, why are you, why does this metric matter? Why are you doing this? And the why is really important because for so many reasons, like um, it helps you understand the prioritization. It helps people, it helps motivate people to achieve goals. Like some, some people are very oriented toward um, metrics. Some people are not as excited at the end of the day if they achieve a number or not. Um, so, so, you know, the, the objective I think can be like a really good sort of inspiring force within the company. Um, and anyway, so what you want is essentially, you know, um, three to five of these OKRs across the company. And eventually as your OKR process becomes more mature, you can kind of trickle down um, or up depending on how you do the, your organization. Um, but basically like those OKRs should translate into goals that individual people, you know, are working on. Um, you know, in, in terms of like how to translate the feedback that you're hearing into OKRs, um, it's 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 useful to you know involve everybody in that process. So 
uh, in, in some form or another. You know, probably, for example, you're gathering like, you know, your leadership team plus maybe an, an extended group and maybe an offsite as a key point in the quarter. And um, together, you know, you're iterating maybe on a framework that you and the CEO put together for maybe like an initial draft of OKRs based on what you've heard in the listening tour. Um, and there, there's kind of a sequential iteration process that you can follow. And, um, you know, eventually you'll want to like communicate that set of priorities to your company in an all hands. And, um, you know, there might be maybe an initial period where like people across the company can, like anyone can give feedback and, and you can sort of like last, ten, last, last effort, last chance for anyone to comment. And then, you know, maybe a couple of days later you say, okay, great. Like this is, you know, what we rolled out. This is final for the quarter. And then you've got, you know, your cadence for tracking against those things. Eventually, um, you know, you'll want to make this an annual process, but assuming that you're coming into the company mid-year, I think thinking about like the next quarter is, is probably a good idea. Got it. Um, I think this is a, a natural segue to kind of click on this, which is like, once you do set your OKRs, whatever that may be for a lot of people, that's three or five goals or whatever the objectives are. I think once it's in production, there seems to be this like uh, natural tension between teams, like when it comes to priorities. And so I guess, how do you navigate polarities with your organization? Um, typically what I've seen is like, there's this tension between biz dev and product or marketing and finance, for example. Um, so in your experience, how do you actually navigate this tension and like, how do you deal with it? Yeah. Um, great question. You know, I think at the end of the day, it's impossible to avoid tension. And I do think that's sort of a fact of running a company, but the more aligned that you can be as a company, the better. And I certainly think that the COO role, one of the sort of measures of success of the COO is like how aligned are people? So it's a great question. Um, the few ways that I've, I've seen people try to mitigate tension or, or prevent it from happening. And um, one is when you're designing OKRs, it's important to ensure that if you're give if you're signing someone an OKR, that they have the opportunity to say, it's going to be difficult for me to achieve this OKR unless another function does certain things, right? We're all sort of clients of each other's work at the end of the day. Um, and so, you know, if marketing, for, as you noted, is responsible for a certain goal and, um, you know, they, they need some input from finance um, in order to achieve that. Uh, or, or maybe, you know, they need help from product in order to make sure that like a launch is successful. Um, that's got to be built into OKR. So you're basically in this OKR process, you're mapping out all the dependencies and acknowledging up front when people are going to be depending on each other. Um, I think, you know, Another way to ensure alignment is um, to rethink your compensation model. You know, I'm used to working at companies and and interacting with companies where um, the every function has its own goal that it's responsible for. Like, you know, sales has got quota attainment and marketing maybe has a pipeline goal and customer success maybe has like a retention goal. Um, and their compensation is based on that. I actually think, and, and, you know, initially when I started saying this, it was, it was controversial. Now I've noticed actually a couple companies that are very successful doing this. I'm a big believer that like basically everyone at the company should be paid a base salary and that, you know, bonuses are distracting and, um, in often skew behaviors in strange ways. And that, you know, at the end of the day, we're all corporate citizens or, corporate sounds bad, but, you know, we're all sort of citizens of this organization. 
We're all on a mission together. Our job, our job, you know, from a financial perspective, our job at the end of the day is to help drive the valuation of this company. And so, you know, if, if you kind of orient people toward like being more mission driven in that way together, everyone is in the same boat. We're just in different seats or like different roles. You, you set the groundwork for alignment in a, a much, um, uh, in, in a much more robust, like foundational way. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think the final way you can solve for tension is, um, you know, often people get frustrated when they think that some other function is not performing well, um, right? Like that's it often if they're like dependent on that function as the client. But, the, you know, that, that's usually where frustration comes in. It's, it's either someone is not performing well or, or there's a perception of that or someone is not um if someone is a blocker to me in some way, I, I think you can get rid of the blocker through the inter, inter, interdependencies that I talked about earlier. I think you can get rid of um, the, the sort of perception of of, perform- of low performance being tolerated by having a, a cadence of meetings where you're going really deep into specific OKRs. And, you know, the, the way that we did this at Gainside, I, I really liked it. We had, so let's let's say that we had four company-wide OKRs. Um, and uh, you, what we would do is each week, each Monday in the morning, we would have a 90-minute meeting on a different one of those company OKRs. And the executive sponsor for that particular OKR, together with like a subgroup that was essentially the working group of people that had OKRs related to that like higher-level OKR, they would present in that meeting. Um, in advance, they would have to put together like a certain data set and explanation. Um, I think we could improve on what we did at Gainsight by having like a, a notion doc where you explain in detail, like, here's where we are relative to the OKR. Here's what we're forecasting. If we're forecasting underachieving, here's why. Here's like specifically the three root causes and here's some data supporting that. Here's the, what I call like a path to green, which is how you get from where you're forecasting today or where you are today to like where you need to be. And that path to green is like literally a waterfall chart that shows like, you know, point A, point B, and like what's the breakdown of how you get there. And, you know, each of the constituent boxes in the waterfall is a different like tactic or initiative that you're running to course correct. Um, you know, when, when people like send out that notion doc in advance and a cross-functional group, like basically the, an extended exec team can read that. And then, you know, during the meeting, there's you know, it, it enables a focus on areas of disagreement or enables people to ask questions, kind of challenge each other in a friendly way. It creates a level of like transparency and accountability that I think builds trust, you know, among people and um, I think helps ensure people that like others are being thoughtful. I think it, um, and, you know, if enough of these meetings happen and, and someone's, you know, not, not delivering like repeatedly, it, it becomes pretty clear to everyone. That it's not just sort of this thing that like people are angsty about it. It's kind of obvious and I think can be corrected that way. The keyword that really stood out to me from what you were describing was the word dependency. I, I love that because I feel like we don't really hear that a lot when it comes to the OKR process. Um, that's not the thing that gets taught the most. And it's, I find that interesting because like as operators, we often build process and every process has dependency. When you go from one stage to the next of the process, there's usually something that like would make the process go faster if the dependencies attached to it or if there's something going on and you know what what that is. But I think it's, in OKRs, it's not described that way, which is really fascinating that you brought that up. That really kind of put a light bulb in my head. I'm like, oh, they should definitely be dependencies. It's like a great way to mitigate the 
tension because now you know for a fact you're no longer i feel like there, a lot of times there's like we do okrs and kind of in silos like you brought up team leads right team leads will go work with their teams in their own little silo create their okrs come back to the executive team say here's what our okrs are and then they just kind of connect the dots and it's like but you just we just did seven different okrs in silos and then now we're trying to glue them together and it doesn't make sense and so i love the approach of like okay if we are going to take that approach what are the dependencies in place and how do we make sure you're not going to like fight for resources or say your team needs more than this and that. So it's super interesting. I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, um, I'm happy you mentioned um, that that sort of situation you described with like functions coming back to the leadership team with like their individual goals. Like that that is, I think, traditionally as so many companies had been run. And what it means is one, you know, there is like strictly this functional lens of goals, as you said. Um, probably each of those functions is managing their goals differently. Um, and they might have like different numbers of metrics that they are tracking. Like everything might be different about kind of how they're instrumenting that. And um, there, you know, besides there not being dependencies that are illustrated in those situation, in that situation, there's also not an understanding of like why these goals are relevant to each other and to a broader strategy. Um, you know, if you think of, if you're like effective founder and you're thinking about like, what do I need to do over the next two years to be successful? Like, it's probably things like, I need to make sure that this product launch goes really well. And yeah, of course, the product team and the engineering team are going to be involved in that. But obviously, you know, the marketing team is going to be super involved in like publicizing this. Customer support is probably going to receive tons of tickets afterwards because maybe like there was some bug or like you know, the, inevitably the feature is imperfect when it was released. And then, you know, Maybe customer success and sales have to think about onboarding customers onto this new product and also, you know, cross-selling that product into existing customers. So I think most true strategic priorities require cross-functional alignment. And I think if you if you start with what the company needs as opposed to what each function is is sort of thinking they need to do, um, it ends up resulting in a much more like much truer set of goals than, you know, if you go function up for sure